What is going on, everybody? Welcome to another episode of Hollywood Already Did It, your weekly movie podcast for movies that have been rebooted, remade, adapted, sequelized, trilogyized. Other words that mean it's an unoriginal idea that's happened time and time again. We are recording this episode on April 8th. Yes, April 8th of 2020, which if you don't know what that means, it means that we are on uh, about week four of our social distancing and our self-isolation due to the novel coronavirus, COVID-19, which means if the audio doesn't sound up to par, it is because we are remoting over Skype because we don't want to get each other sick because you might not get sick from listening to us, but we could get each other sick from spitting on our faces as you are one to do during a podcast. As always, I am your host, Blake Schultz, and with me today is my co-host, Terrence Tatum. Hello, everyone. And coming from the new high-voltage media, Steve Cravens. How's it going, everybody? And uh, this week, we would have seen the release of No Time to Die, the final Daniel Craig Bond film. However, they were the first one to pull their movie from the schedule, which means we're going to do some uh, two weeks of retroactive Bond lookbacks. This week, we're going to be talking about Dr. No, and next week, we will be talking about Casino Royale. Uh, so Dr. No, originally released in 1962, based off the book by the same name, which was released in 1958. It was the movie that launched us into the secret agent film genre of the 1960s, akin to what, say, X-Men did to the superhero movies years ago. I don't know how they felt about them at the time, but if we're a little bit tired, they were probably a little bit tired by the second decade they were going on as well. It was the first attempt to adapt James Bond into a movie form after Harry Saltzman, who got the rights, and originally didn't want to go through with the project until Albert R. Broccoli wanted to buy them. They instead formed a partnership, shopping around the script from studio to studio. And at that time, a lot of studios actually did not want to buy the movie because they felt that it was too sexual and too British, which I find fascinating. So guys, I'm going to start with Steve. Steve, what do you think about Dr. No? I actually think it's pretty much the perfect starting point for any series. Uh, If you look at it, it still has all the key ingredients that was carried over throughout all the Sean Connery movies and indeed a lot of the Roger Moore movies as well. So I think it has a lot going for it. I don't think it's perfect. Some things haven't aged that well. But if you look at it, I mean... I mean, from the Ken Adams set design, uh, John Barry's music, uh, you know, you've got uh, Cubby Broccoli, and then you've got Harry Saltzman producing. Terrence Young came back to direct from Russia with Love and Thunderball. You know, it's just, it has so many ingredients in there, but most of all, Sean Connery. So I think it's a great starting off point for the series. Terrence? Yeah, uh, it's funny because I had not seen this film in at least a good eight years. So I watched this before we were doing this. And that movie, it does hold up well. Like the nuts and bolts of what make Bond Bond are all still working. There are some things that are dated. Like watching some driving, the driving sequence in this movie was like, oh, this this is a little rough. But that's green screen. That's what you had to do at that time. He can't drive in this movie. He's going up to meet that girl, and he's swerving in and yeah. out of lanes. It yeah. was ridiculous. <laughs> it was a little nuts. Um, but the nuts and bolts of what make Bond Bond it all was there, and I and I really liked it. I'm a bigger fan of the Connery era because it takes itself a little bit more seriously. So I loved 
these films. And like you said, Terrence did three of the six Connery films. So I all his films are pretty much in my top ten uh, uh, of Bond movies. Yeah. Kind of young together. Yeah, I think I always like going back to this movie because it's well, you know, it's older than all of us. Therefore, it was none of our first Bonds, I don't think, unless somebody had the kind of parents that were like, until you die, you've got to watch Doctor No all the way through. Dalton. No, it was not. It was not my first. <laughs> yeah. Good. Um. I always like kind of whenever I do a rewatch of the Bond movies, it's a very good encapsulation of just filmmaking through the years. And it's such an interesting way to see how we really shot and produced movies in the early 60s and how we shot and produced them in the 70s and the 80s and the 90s and watching these trends kind of change. And I think when you really look at this movie, because I didn't know that it was really credited with kicking off this whole genre in this way uh when you start looking at it that way it is all the nuts and bolts of a bond movie that you really expect to be there i mean even besides the like quote-unquote bond branding of what he drinks and drives and wears and acts and says it really also just invokes i think a lot of the things in that genre that ended up encapsulating what it all means similarly to how almost every superhero origin has the the suit up and the moment of failure and the testing of the powers. This has your your first person who turns on you, the person who you think is going to be bad, but they're good, and we're going to have to fight a little bit before we get there, and the big megalomaniac revealing his plan, and, oh, he wanted the hero there because he thought there'd be a seat at the table with the terrorists if he played ball right, and all of the female characters and how kind of everyone acts and what it even sort of, I think, tries to say coming off of a like cold war scenario and evoking what some of the fears and issues there were having that dna kind of baked into the original bond movies kept the stakes at a much like lower and scarier place when it isn't really end of the world stuff it's more intimate and the immediate lives that are there we're not quite at the cartoony supervillains that we're going to face yet and every problem Bond goes through isn't a ticking bomb to the end of the world at this place which I always really like but I think even seeing the way it's shot in this time was interesting because it, it's paced so differently from anything else that we've really talked about on this show this is the oldest movie we've done on the show so far mm-hmm. and when you think about just these wide shots and low amount of cuts and just being stuck in these rooms in these moments and how that kind of makes you feel. It's funny too, because watching it, I was like, ah, I I mean, Steve and I went to go see Apocalypse Now in theaters, but you don't really get films that just take their time anymore. And this is definitely a movie that there were moments where you're like, all right, I'm just going to let this scene breathe. I'm just going to sit in this moment where Bond is sitting in this room watching preparing for somebody to try and kill like the whole spider sequence is just fascinating because that couldn't happen today but just the way that they shoot that just crawling up and him sweating i was like this is phenomenal filming um parents i don't know what you're talking about they do that in attack of the clones with natalie portman <laughs> and it oh, looks man. so bad then. oh god <laughs> right, no, so, yeah. you're, you're absolutely right and and I think what that also does is it really shows you how Bond acts, where I think in, in later movies we're kind of just told 
that he's yeah. like the best double agent and he can do all of these things. And in this movie, the scene I really think about is when he's waiting for the villain to come in after he's sent the girl away and he's, he's playing solitaire in the corner mm-hmm. and you just watch him play solitaire and go through his deck of cards. And it shows you the patience and planning that this character has and how, like two steps ahead of the game he is and what he's willing to do. We don't need to get the information in a, in a big brawl. He set a trap that we see or him getting out through the air vent and Dr. Nose Lair is another example of him kind of on his feet and looking at the scenario. Everything isn't gadgets and gizmos and brute force yet. The old Connery movies were very like his cunning and his abilities. Yeah, especially in the originals, the gadgets were very minimal uh, in this first film compared to where they where they end up with once we start getting to invisible cars and stuff. <laughs> oh, God, Jesus. <laughs> so what do you guys think of this is the movie that has a quintessential moment in cinema? This is the introduction to the, the, the music, him introducing himself, us first seeing him. Uh, it's interesting, I think, looking at it as an ad- adaptation because while Dr. No is not the first book, their introducing of the char- character is actually pulled from Casino Royale. They're introducing the character in the same way, yeah. in a casino, playing cards. Uh, this was apparently done, I, I learned while researching this, hours before we recorded. Um, Ian Fleming insisted on introducing the character this way, he considered how you hold yourself at a casino, how you behave, your manners, and if you understand gambling to be the traits of a gentleman, which is how he wanted his James Bond to be. Which is interesting because the kind of things that the this first movie take away from Ian Fleming's like actual character is, you know, he's not that suave. are no gadgets one of the things he laments about in books is the you know restrictions on his technology and if only they had the technological capacities of russia and these other places there's a lot more visage of the cold war and in those early books especially kind of his issues with where they're stuck at and it's something that really isn't in this movie. We see a Bond who's always on top of his game and poised. They take this gentleman idea to kind of the next level and make him an expert everywhere. Yeah, he's yeah. sort of already in the zone by the time that we we are introduced to him in this. And I love, I mean, we we, we, we can't take a capsule and go back and see how the audience has reacted, but I love that this movie didn't open. Like, it showed just his hands, so you were looking at him doing stuff before you actually turned and saw who his face was. And his calling sign came from someone else. Like, they said their name in the way that Bond, James Bond, like, they said their name first, and he just reciprocated that. Yeah, and yeah. it became the staple for the whole franchise. It was kind of fascinating. Yeah. Wow. No, I, I've always loved that intro. It's, you know what actually kind of fascinates me about it is that, so Sean Connery didn't have you know, anything to kind of go off of. I'm sure, you know, Terrence Young probably gave him direction on how to say it, how to play it, you know, maybe, you know, light your cigarette while you say it, whatever. When Roger Moore says it, 
when George Lazenby says it, Pierce Brosnan, Timothy Dalton, who, Daniel Craig, whoever, they always have callbacks to previous Bonds. Like, I remember Pierce Brosnan saying, like, when he was filming Goldeneye, when it came his turn to say it, he was like, you know, I kept having, like, Sean Connery and Roger Moore come in, and I was, I was trying to do my version of that, and, and it wasn't coming off right. But, like, Sean Connery's like, no, you're the first one. You, yeah, like there's no there, there's no model for what you're gonna do or how are you gonna say it and that, and I think because he didn't have that pressure on him it just came out so naturally and yep. everything else just pales in comparison to his yeah, delivery. Like he set the stage and everyone else is now just following in his in his footsteps. Yeah, yeah. I'm sure there was pressure. Don't get me wrong. Like I mean, it's it's a big you know this this could be a potential series here, so you got to get it right. But yeah. you don't have, you know, the specter, no pun intended, of anybody else <laughs> hovering above you, you know, to to kind of live up to. You know what I mean? Yeah. Well, that that's the interesting part of being the first, <clears throat> excuse me, the first out of the gate to adapt a literary character is you don't have anything visual to build off of yet. Yeah. So there are a lot of like mannerism choices you can make and how he walks and how he speaks and how he delivers lines and and carries himself in different situations is really something that you're not stuck in yet and i think that's why the longer these movies went on the more the conversation really became which bond is better and you have kind of some schools of thought of the people who go well you know dalton and craig are really the closest to what ian fleming wanted this big mm -hmm. brutes brawler guy but you have the people who now associate him with just being this suave, perfect, cool, collected character that we see in a Connery or a Brosnan. And yeah. it really depends almost on, like, if you're a suit guy, you probably like Roger Moore a lot because that was what defined that character, was how he dressed and looked. And I think there's so many film versions with Brosnan, uh, Moore, and Connery that that has sort of become um, what the staple is more so than the books like people are more familiar with the films than they are the book stuff so i think people have kind of stapled the connery style of bond to their their memory or what they should see as opposed to what the the, the actual literature says um yeah. well i mean we see that now with like your batmans and spider-mans those are probably the other two characters that come the closest to having on the people in the time we how we want it to feel and who we want to be saying it and how they should be acting and we go as far to compare them to animated versions of these characters and how all of it connects and it's always sort of the like you always remember your first one yeah no <laughs> yeah. i think my favorite will just always be pierce because i saw goldeneye first and was like this is james bond it's it's really interesting for me. My first one that I actually remember seeing was Dalton, because um, I was right then, and and he didn't get, he didn't get too much of a run. So I was like, oh, this is really good. I'm like, oh, well, that that was short lived. And then Pierce was like probably my through the main time when I'm actively watching films. Pierce Brosnan was my guy, but uh, he's not my favorite Bond. <laughs> Sean, Sean Connery is actually Golden. Uh, excuse me, Goldfinger was the first one I saw. Oh, really? I had a really bizarre. I had Goldfinger was my first one. So Goldeneye for N64 came out, and my dad had two Bond movies on VHS. One was Goldfinger, and the other one was um, A View to a Kill. I don't know why that one, but uh, <laughs> those two were my first introductions to it. And then I uh, Thunderball and uh, You Only Live Twice came after that. So Connery was actually my first introduction. Goldeneye and Tomorrow Never Dies that didn't come later for me. Gotcha. Didn't yeah, come I until later for me. 
Yeah, my first one that I saw was a license to kill. Um, oh, so, so good. Yeah, it is. <laughs> and it's in its own way. It's very, very good. It is. Oh yeah, all the Dalton ones are once I finally got to those, they were the two where I was like, This is this is what we should be doing. But even that, you know, really evokes what like an eighties action movie was at yep. the time. We started getting into drug lords and gambits and all these things. It's why so many of the movies just kind of toss out their source material. Dr. No and Casino Royale are two of the few that really are kind of one-to-ones of the books with Dr. No kind of being this amalgamation um, of what will come. It's one of the few movies that so early on, similarly to kind of how we talk about the MCU now, of these threads they're laying, they were actually very purposefully doing things like mentioning the organization that Dr. No works for being Spectre and events from Casino Royale are kind of mentioned in this movie, implying that there is a bigger world. It's why when they were originally looking for people to do it, uh, the producers wanted Cary Grant and it prevent what prevented them from pursuing it was they knew they wanted this to go on for a couple films. They didn't think he would sign on for a multi-film contract. So then through a lot of do's and don'ts, I know the big rumor for a while was that Sean Connery got it in a, like, who will be Bond competition, which has been debunked, although that competition did exist, (laughs) and a, like, renowned male model won and screen tested and just couldn't handle the role. So it wasn't until they got Connery who would sign on for multiple movies, which I think is interesting. They had to, they filmed, those first four are filmed, like, they're literally back to back to back. Like they came out each year. So they were cranking those out. And so whoever was attached knew this, like this is all I'm doing for the next four years straight of my life. Yeah. It's an interesting thing to look at because they're kind of mimicking. I think it's easy to look at modern cinema, modern movies, modern film, however you want to say it and be cynical of, well, everything's just setting up a franchise and everything's setting up a trilogy and nothing's standing on its own. And we sort of, have this nostalgic coat over the 60s, the 70s, these sort of eras. But when you go back to them developing this franchise, the intention was to always make a bunch of movies. There there was never really a moment where they were just going to make one James Bond movie and call it a day. I mean, Dr. No doesn't even have James Bond in the title. Yeah. (laughs) It's, it's, I think, kind of a fascinating thing to look at. Cary Grant was down to do it if it was only one movie though that's what right like that's that was his thing like if you guys make one movie i'll do it yeah yeah yeah, so, yeah they knew damn well like yeah that's i mean as much as we'd love to have you it's not gonna work he was also way too old i mean that always ends up being the problem isn't it <laughs> I mean, yeah. Have... yeah there's some people that are pitch perfect at the age that they want to film that one but then they think like we'd like to do at least two or three of these with you so you might be aged out by the time that we get back to the back around to this yeah, yeah. You know, uh, I don't know if you guys know this, but uh, Albert R. Broccoli, the best man at his wedding was, um, I can't remember if it was his wedding or if the other guy's wedding, but anyway, Alfred Hitchcock was best friends with Albert R. Broccoli. And they wanted Hitchcock to direct Dr. No, but his asking price was way too high for what they had to work with. So I can only imagine a James Bond movie directed by Alfred Hitchcock. That would have been something. <laughs> that would have been nuts. That, that so, would have been amazing. I love looking back now at the how hard this was to get made. I kind of mentioned it at the top of the show that all the studios thought it was going to be too sexual or too British or too slow or this, that, and the other. And by the time they got to United Artists, they would only give them a million dollars to make the movie. 
which yeah. is like, you know, even by the time they were parroting this, a million dollars was nothing in Austin Powers. That's the whole joke of the movie. Um, so it, it's it's crazy to think about that too. Um, it's almost a weird thing to bring up that I was thinking about, but part of, I think, why this character sort of accidentally ended up hitting was to come out in the 60s right during the like sexual revolution when people were being more free and getting playboy cultures started it really shows you a change in time and tides when people won't make something because it's too sexual two years before a decade that is now known for being the period when people started really being open about that kind of context and content and i think that shines even more light on why this character persists there is sort of an openness in that sexuality that was probably very refreshing to see yeah it's interesting to watch this now uh considering where the casino like the, the craig bombs are because everyone's smoking everyone's like flirting with everybody there's sex all over the place like oh this is a very different like a time capsule wise you can see how the world viewed things very differently and it was a pg film but it's like it's smoking and guns and sex all literally all over the place and now pg-13 that all of that but the sex for the most part is sort of tamed down and toned down for now the smoking for sure yeah smoking is definitely that's just yeah. all and gone <laughs> uh, I think he uh, he hasn't smoked a cigarette since License to Kill. I, I think. say the Dalton era, yeah. Uh, yeah. Well, that's again, right? That's why these movies are great to watch and just see how our culture has changed. Because you can see even in that, right when we started doing the, you can't smoke in movies. Smoking is bad. We have to get this clear. But up until then, that was part of being a gentleman and being cool and knowing your cigarette brands and how to smoke it and having a light for someone right. is all very in the DNA of it. Yes, it was. Is there anything else about the movie itself that stands out to you guys? This villain, the cinematography, the design? Everything about it. Like, like I said earlier, just everything about it just... It, 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 it's... Its influence on all the other Bond movies is so strong. I mean, look at the opening gun barrel, for example. The gun barrel, the main title sequence, even though like it, they got more risque as it went on, and then they eventually had original songs. Um, the, the villain having like these eccentricities about him, like in this case, like the metal steel hands. Yeah. You know, like you know, like it paved the way for like future Bond films to have like that weird physical. There's trait always about them. some tick to everything. Yeah. Um, uh, you know the. I mean, even we didn't talk about this. You talk about an iconic uh, entrance for James Bond, but even the uh, entrance for Honey Rider. Ursula comes out yeah, that water. You're yeah. Like, Jesus. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's that's iconic too. I mean, um, it's just it's a and, and, they don't have Q in this movie, but he gets that little package from Q Branch, right? From with mm -hmm. the, the Walther and all that stuff. Bernard Lee is them. So it's just it's. Yes, it's not my favorite Sean Connery movie, but I appreciate it so much because in one movie it was able to set up the tone and the world so well that you know few movies are able to do that really these days anyway yeah. to set up a whole world and that's that's tough and each point gets like just a small window of time like his interaction with money penny in this brief moment yes. that we get you learn there yes. you can feel their entire world yes. of what they've gone through in just that brief moment it's really yep. well done yep no, it's and maybe world a uh, universe like like you said there there's the sense that there is a greater universe out there and you and to convey that in one movie is pretty impressive. Yeah, all the characters feel like they have a big history and they're able to do that through 
it like ticks in the dialogue and ways they interact and even the moments with M of leaving the old gun behind and taking the new one, you get a sense that he was sort of attached to that gun and to what it represented and who he was at that time. And it makes you really kind of wonder, like that's the upgrade process for him. But there is sort of a sense of letting go and moving on that it almost isn't even caught by the audience or by us. Cause he just so seamlessly walks out or that it's like, Oh, of course the gun, but it, it yeah. feels like there's a choice to keep that by the character that yeah. there is some sense of nostalgia behind this man of like, you know, we don't go as far as Kingsman with these newspapers behind him of all the days he saved the world, but we do still get that piece of it. Yes. So we touched a little bit on the adaptation side of it, and it is very the closest probably to any of the books, but I thought some of the interesting changes that I wrote down were that one of the big sequences missing is uh, him fighting a giant squid, yep. which was <laughs> clearly removed for the budgetary reasons that we talked about. He originally escapes Dr. No's Island in the disguised dragon swamp buggy again i think we can blame budgetary restrictions on that the tarantula that terrence mentioned was originally a centipede and let's be honest tarantulas are just cooler than centipedes and way more frightening and, and uh, yes they're terrifying yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like when i read that i was like a centipede he would just swat <laughs> it away he's in the tropics <laughs> Uh, the Doctor Knows Death, I don't know why this stuck to me. Maybe it's because I've seen Back to the Future too many times. He's originally buried under a shoot of guano to die in the book. That's a bad way to go. It's yeah, a very Biff Tanner way of going. Not, 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 not as bad as how he gets it in the movie, but yeah, it's still pretty bad. <laughs> well, you know, in the movie, a part of me is like, you know you don't have hands. Don't go anywhere where you may need hands. <laughs> like, bad bad move. Yeah. Um, okay, so this is usually the part of the show where we talk about its thematic relevance to today and if the source material had it. That's obviously a little bit more challenging to do. Uh, so instead, I think I'm going to ask both of you, you sort of both mentioned there are aspects of the movie that's aged well and aspects of it that have not aged well. What are some of the things specifically that you thought have aged well? You want to take that, Terrence? Um, I, I will say the the interactions between Bond and the villain. There's always a moment where his first time meeting that villain and they have their their tit for tat, their back and forth, where they're one up each other, usually in dialogue in these Bond films. Unlike some films where it's an action sequence that are you see them first going, and here it's usually a, a mind versus mind or a one-upsman versus one-upsman type of thing. And that... I think has carried throughout the entire Bond franchise. Some actors handle it better than others, but I think for the most part, that has been a staple of like when we, these two, the hero and the villain meet for the first time in these films, they always have a moment where I'm just fascinated to watch how they interact with each other. Um, and that's been a staple. Mm -hmm. um, for me, I think one of the movie's biggest strengths is the fact that they shot on location and they did have some sets. Obviously, the uh, the main scene where we're introduced to Bond, the casino is a set. But when you're in Jamaica, like they actually went to location. They, they didn't shoot on sound stages and try to dress. The, I mean, some of it they did, but like the the actual locations in these early Bond movies are what makes them unique. Because like we like we forget that back then, it's you know some parts of the world weren't as easily as accessible as they are now. 
So it was it, it was literally an escape to go somewhere when you went on adventure with Bond. So I think the fact that they did shoot pra in practical locations and these gourd and it, the Jamaica locations they use are absolutely beautiful, by the way. Um, I think that's one of its strengths is that they you look at movies from let's say the late fifties right before this came out. Uh, you can tell that there's that like old Hollywood kind of feeling to it where they do film on a set somewhere on a soundstage somewhere. Yeah. And not, I mean, again, that's kind of the charm of older movies is that it kind of has a theatricality about it. It's like you're seeing a play, but this one, like, no, we're going to go all out. We're going to take you to where the movies, you know, takes place. And it just, it looks gorgeous to this day. I watched it on Amazon. It looks absolutely gorgeous. I think that's why some of the visuals of this one still work and a lot of the earlier bonds still work because when you go to London, Jamaica and you film that, it's going to look beautiful no matter what decade you're in. It still, yeah. it still holds up well. Yeah, yeah. So that that's, in my opinion, the thing that holds up well the most for me. <clears throat> I completely agree. I think on top of that, to kind of piggyback on what Taryn said about the locations, <clears throat> part of the reason the, the look of these movies, I think, is always going to stand out is because so much of Bond is looking cool so these these cars they're gonna pick out these suits they're gonna pick out the glasses he's drinking out of the watches the shoes the dresses the women are in the locations everything about it always kind of has to ooze suave and pizzazz and that it always makes it good to watch because you're just always looking at something that's like clean cut and perfect it's like going to any architecture in a city and it's thousands of years old, but it still is just beautiful because of how it was built. Um, I think it's stuff like that. I think the storylines, I think, always have relevance when you go into something about kind of fear of potential terrorism. I don't think that's something that's really ever gone away. Any type of we're preventing something. I think even now we kind of in the world we're living in now see that that's if anything unexpected happens and the world shuts down, we see the dangers of it. And if that's always in the back of your mind, something like James Bond will always have a relevant thematic idea. Oh, oh yeah, sure. It's even stronger right now. Yeah, that's a good point. Well, that you know, they always say that the Bond movies do better in a recession. So obviously No Time to Die is about to make more oh. money. <laughs> Um, one of the things, though, that I think it's weird because I still think it's a part of who this character is and you need it, but they've sort of gotten away from a lot of the womanizing and Daniel Craig stuff. But some of the, the stuff that <laughs> that Bond says is a little like, oh, that's you're borderline. That's that's some rape culture, right? Like you're close. You're real close. Bond. <laughs> and but it's product of the time. So I'm like, all right, I'll. I'll let it fly. I know that's what it, that's how you I, did things back then, but it's still sometimes I'm like, ooh, that's. Uh, that's I think I think you're being a little generous when you say that it's kind of it is rape culture. <laughs> <laughs> you're, you're, no, some of the things he says, there's no there's no miter. Oh man, that's that's borderline. You should probably stop. No, it's like no, he's doing he's doing. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but yeah. it's like it, it's it's like but like you say, it's a product of the time. So like, what are we gonna do? Go back in time and be like, oh hey man, sorry, you like you're gonna. That? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, go back in time almost 60 years. Oh, hey, uh, yeah, you're going to – you might want to change your attitude, pal. 60 years from now, that's going to be frowned upon. You know, 60 years from now when you're going to be 90 years old, this is going to be frowned upon. <laughs> but, yeah, no, yeah. But, but I agree. Yeah, there's – I mean, it's just the product of the time, like you said. What are you going to do? Is there anything else, Steve, that you don't think has aged great if you stack this up next to modern movies? 
outside of his uh yeah well no there's yes there's a couple things okay so uh, if you're talking about like just little details here and there obviously some of the rear projection doesn't work and you know you can tell that it's rear projection uh some of the movies like like raiders of lost ark for example they have plenty of rear projection going on but it's done so well that you unless you're really looking for it you can't tell um and i think so going back to like the overall style of it yes the movie has plenty of style but like we've talked about this before now paying attention to it in a different way it is a product of the time so i'm not criticizing too much but it's very um not stale but it's very sterile in how it's shot the camera movements the framing it's it's very it's it's old school filmmaking it's not very elaborate how like how the movies eventually got it's, even up to goldfinger it's uh, almost done like a play like a like a stage play like the shots are static so there's yeah. not really much movement in the way that they frame it yeah he's right yeah yeah so that that's just for me it hasn't it doesn't really hold up that in that regard it, it it's dated it's not that it doesn't hold up it's just it's dated it feels like this movie is from a different time because it is so uh, and that way, it's um, it definitely shows its age. I think too um, the action sequences in this. While I think because we're all we're spoiled now that we live in a world where we've seen some some pretty immaculate action sequences, especially in regards to Bond, that these action sequences you're kind of just like, oh, there's not. This is more character heavy. And leaning into that and the goodness of that, but the action sequences don't really happen. Like when when he disarms the two gentlemen and who ends up being on his team, you're like, oh, this really is a. Then nothing happened action wise. You just kick them and then that's sort of it. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> um, yeah. Well, it's interesting those like firecracker moments that to us now, when we have things like Skyfall and Casino Royale and the Marvel movies and the Star Wars movies and the Bourne movies and. Man from Uncle and Kingsman and the these things that we wouldn't have without Doctor No. We would we would not right. have the first Kingsman movie in its glorious megalomaniac over the top hyper stylized way if we didn't start here. Right. And it's interesting to think about what that kick was like when you had been going at that one pace the whole time. I imagine yeah. it's like listening to this podcast and then it peaks and you jump a little bit. Uh, <laughs> I, I have to assume that that's the same feeling they had in the '60s when you, because even I was kind of like watching, like zoning out a bit, and I'm like looking at COVID-19 news on my phone, and then you're like, "Oh man, well he kicked that guy, <laughs> and now the other guy is attacking him. Oh no!" <laughs> like it's funny how those moments of tension suddenly they're they're so quick and fast, but they do have a weight because it's such a big change in the pace. Right. Like an old Metallica song that would go eight minutes long and you'd be like, oh, my God. But then the guitar solo would come up and you were like, wow. No, I think that's actually a good point because there's still there's some movies today that are a little bit slower in pace. They're more character heavy. But then when an action sequence happens, whether it's a fight scene or a shootout or whatever, it does, it it's more memorable that way because they don't all blend together. So maybe not like that. I know what you're talking about when he kicks Felix Slider, right? The Felix Slider and the other guy. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I, now that I think about it, since you brought it up, I'm thinking like, okay, so yeah, there's that. There's that little car chase. Outside and then, of that, there is no other action. There, there, there's no. It, it's the, mostly the, it's, the escape from the the the, the facility, but that's not. Yeah. Really. <laughs> oh, and then, and then like that fire breathing dragon thing, you know. There's that, but but 
if you think about it, the movie kind of like excels not necessarily with its action, which is what it's now known for, but it's more atmosphere. Right. More yeah. Anything. Well, this was even. Oh, I'm going to do bad math. This was 62, yeah. right? Yeah. So this was 62. Steve, correct me if I'm incorrect. Jaws was 76, 77? 75. 75. So that's what, 13 years before the concept of a summer blockbuster where we had to have a, a big, exciting action movie really existed. Yeah. And we really kind of did a decade of these slow espionage spy movies pretty much up until we got the big blockbuster and the pulpy sci-fi space anthem that that star wars started and yeah. it's weird just because right along to the 80s and it's weird because um dr no when adjusted for inflation back even like it's 2005 it's still only seven million dollars so it's, that budget is still nothing the first time that they actually probably got an action style budget was like all the way with Moonraker for Roger Moore. So, which is not a good movie, but that's when they started getting to the point where they started doing stuff that was a little bigger than norm with well, the bond stuff. Well, even before that, I would go, I mean, look at Thunderball, for example, like that big underwater battle. So Thunderball is the biggest, the biggest one, the jump for Connery. Like he went his first three and then Thunderball was the biggest, like yeah. that one went from one million, one million. That was a six million dollar budget for Thunderball, but Moonraker was like the biggest. Oh, uh, oh, you're talking about in terms of budgets, yeah. Okay, yeah. no, that makes sense. Yeah, I mean, oh yeah, for sure. And that was, yeah. No, it's funny. I mean, yeah, most of those movies, even though they they did get bigger in scale, they did keep the budget relatively. They were pretty uh, tight. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They maximized the profits, I guess. But you know what you you were saying about you know the summer blockbuster in terms of like having this big. Um, Bond was a summer product, now that I think about it. I don't know about in 62 or 63, but, like, for years, Bond was considered summer fair. And then GoldenEye was November, right? That's when it started coming out in November. Correct, yeah. GoldenEye came out in November, but it was weird, though, because I feel like Pierce's stuff then switched to summer. Because I feel like I remember... I don't know, remember what Tomorrow Never Dies, but I feel like The World Is Not Enough was a summer release because I actually remember going to the theater for the summer for that release. Oh. That was that was November. I, I, I it came oh, out. Really? It came out the same uh, around the same time as Sleepy Hollow. Maybe that was right? just all for school. Oh yeah, I was on school. I was on break. So yeah, you had the same effect that I had with Casino, where I was like, but school wasn't around, and it's because I was off for. I was for off. Yeah. Time. Thanksgiving. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So it's just interesting how like you know at, because License to Kill flopped in the summer, got killed, then they decided to switch it to November. Yeah. Well, that was twofold because it was also rated R, and people were kind of just like, I don't know what this means. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, a yeah. very a shocking thing to find out that your R-rated franchise has been R the entire time. <laughs> well, I mean, come on, man. You can't compare any of the other Bond movies to License to Kill. License to Kill is very abrasive. Oh, yeah, no, it's <laughs> on its own. And what I love it. No, it's great, but it's just it's not the same as the others. No, 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 not by a long shot. So I think the last thing to ask here... Um, we've touched on it a little bit, but I, you both kind of brought it up at the beginning that this movie has all of the, the elements of who James Bond is. Yes. So then it's kind of a twofold question. This was the first shot at adapting James Bond to the major motion picture to the screen. I think the Casino Royale satire might have come out before it, but who cares? No. Um, what do you guys think of when you think of Bond? And do you think this was a good adaptation of what we had, you know, in 1958 to 
Because it's well, interesting because it's a like one to one of the book, right? Yeah. But they do mm-hmm. kind of trim who this character is a little bit and this make him weird. something for the cinema. It's weird though, because this is really hard for me and probably for you guys too, is that it's weird that we're we're looking back on a character that exists that started in sixty two, but our first entry for most of us for this for Bond was in eighty nine ish, ninety ish era. So we have either Dalton or Pierce is pretty much our first entry point. So it's weird trying to say if that character nails it because in my brain I also am still stuck with so much of what Pierce and Dalton gave me first before I can kind of go back to that. Um, so ugh, I, I do think the biggest thing that I will say is that I think that Bond from start to finish has given me this this cool factor, this suave factor, this, suave, this character that when... <laughs> When all else is going wrong in the world, if a Bond movie is dropping, I'm like, oh, cool. For the next two hours of my life, I can escape and have some fun and just go into this world of what I would argue is one of the coolest motherfuckers in the, in the, yeah. In the world. <laughs> yeah, um, I'm not sure if this is going to answer your question, but let me put it like this. In terms of Connery's Bond, at least in this movie, like you said, they it doesn't encapsulate the entirety of the character, like not every single depth to him is revealed in this movie. It's, it's very much like kind of like the essentials, you know, we're going to make him a ladies man. We're going to make him dangerous. He's a man of his country. He's a man of his mission. And you know, he's going to stop at nothing to get what needs to be done in that sense. All that matters is that they convey that and they convey it well. And that he's more interesting than the villain. James Bond always has to be more interesting or at least more entertaining than the villain. Especially if you're introing Bond, like for the fir- for, for yes. whoever the whoever the Bond actor is that is taking over for that first movie, he needs to be the most interesting person yes. on screen. Yes, yes, and uh, and obviously that's not true. Like with later movies, like the villain sometimes does overshadow Bond in his complexities and and how interesting he is. But for right. this movie, all that mattered was that James Bond was the most interesting person in the room, and they succeeded. And I I, I think in that way, it is a good adaptation. I don't know if that answers your question, but yeah. Yeah, it absolutely answers my okay, question. Okay. It answers it flawlessly. <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, all right, I think we're going to wrap this little ditty up. Unless anybody has anything else to say on the the Dr. No. Uh, no, just I think it's a really great adaptation uh, for what it is, and I think it's a great starting off point for the series. And, and again, for all the flaws or uh, shortcomings that it may have under a micro, you know, modern microscope, it's still a pretty damn good movie, I think. Absolutely. All right, guys. Well, that's going to do it for us. Uh, Stay safe out there. Stay healthy. And while you're staying safe and healthy, you should leave us a review on iTunes. You should go right over there and do it. Or if you're on Podchaser, you can do it there. Or Spotify, I think, also has them now. Uh, Do that. And then hop on over to our Facebook group at facebook.com slash group slash Hollywood Already Did It. We're on Twitter at Hollywood ADI, Instagram at Hollywood Already Did It. I'm at, as always, Blake. Terrence is at Terrence Tatum. We do another show called One More Drink. And Steve, where can the good people find you and your show and all that nonsense? Uh, look for High Voltage. And what is the show? Uh, basically, it's a sports and movie show. I do retrospectives for movies that I feel are underrated or underappreciated, underseen, whatever uh, the case may be. And I also try to do sports videos, uh, but that's been <laughs> that's been really that's been really dry lately. So I've been doing a lot of uh, old movie retrospectives. You can catch me on High Voltage Media on YouTube and High Voltage Media LLC on Twitter. All right, and we will see you guys next week. Later.